And I watched them pull the first rotavirus vaccine off the market in the late 1990s because across our nation, we had less than 100 cases of a rare intestinal problem called intussusception that the, you know, the FDA was concerned might have come from the rotavirus vaccines. President of Texans for Vaccine Choice, and I'm so excited about my guest today. This is Dr. Rennie Moon, and I am going to read a little bit about her so that y'all can get to know her as I have gotten to know her. Dr. Moon is a pediatrician with over 25 years of clinical experience. She trained at a top U.S. medical school, earning board certification in both general pediatrics and pediatric hospital medicine. Dr. Moon practiced in the state of Washington for over 17 years, primarily as a pediatric hospitalist at Sacred Hearts Children's Hospital in Spokane. She cared for the region's sickest children. And uh, this is patient care with one of the highest risks of malpractice claims. And yet she has zero malpractice claims against her, no actions against her license in Washington state or elsewhere. So let me reiterate this. She has an unblemished career record. Um, Before we start, Dr. Moon, is there anything you'd like to add about your background or your biography um, that I I might have missed? Yeah, I actually practiced in Houston. So hello, Texas, for people listening from Texas. So, yeah. That is terrific. Well, and I was so blessed to get to know you. You know, I'd followed you on Twitter for a while, and then in November... There was a, um, a Freedom Doctors Alliance conference in Bandera, Texas, and we were so blessed to have you there. You were one of the presenters there. That was just a very special moment for me as an activist in the state of Texas as well to just be there to, you know, they, we were Texas for Vaccine Choice was, you know, an exhibitor or vendor there, but the entire yeah. convention kind of treated the vendors as as family. It was just such a special weekend and getting to know you was kind of icing on the cake. And so let's just kind of dive in if you're ready because you have a very yeah. interesting story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to give my quick disclaimer though. If you, just for a second, I'll give my disclaimer. So my words today yeah. are my own. I'm not here representing any uh, entity or past or present employer. So I have to say that. And otherwise, let's do it. Yeah. So. All right. Let's do it. Well, let's just set the stage because I bet that once people hear your story, they're going to be like, oh, well, she's just in one of those crazy anti-vax doctors. Is that the case? Is that the case? Yeah. I mean, you're just... Uh- so, so no, I actually, you know, I, I, like I said, I attended a top U.S. medical school. I followed the rules that I thought were out there. I, I absolutely have been an advocate of traditional childhood vaccines for my whole career. Um, 2020 really opened my eyes, really 2021 opened my eyes to much of what's happening now. I, we've, we've been so silenced in the medical world. It's really unbelievable. Um, so we'll talk about that more, I know, today as we get into our discussion. But but yeah, I've, I've absolutely not been anti-vax. No. All right. So what prompted you to speak out about the COVID jabs, especially for the push on children to get them? Yeah. So as this rolled out, you know, I could see that kids 
we, we saw the data, the kids really had a statistical zero risk of a fatality from COVID. You know, you have a, your child has a 99.997% and higher chance of surviving COVID just fine. And so it, it really began to concern me that this product was being pushed uh, out into children. So I watched the the hearings that were being held uh, with regard to this uh, from the, you know, from the Immunization Practices Committee and the FDA and uh, was really alarmed by what I was seeing. They they really weren't asking the questions that needed to be asked. Uh, and, and I was worried about the data. So so I, I began to watch it really closely. I, for the record, have never ordered the COVID-19 shot knowingly for any of my patients. And I have to say knowingly because some of the healthcare systems will attach a physician's name to an order and you don't know about it. But, mm. but I've never knowingly ordered uh, the shot for a child. And the data was really clear from the beginning. This was this was a product that that was highly concerning. Looking at the data, and then as it began to roll out, and I began to see uh, things happening in my community, I began to speak out. Well, and tell me about your experience testifying in D.C. and uh, what was the hearing about? What did you say? Um, yeah. Just tell me about your experience. So, what compelled you to even go? Well, I just felt like we weren't being listened to. And I think as a, as a pediatrician, you know, I feel like I took an oath to do no harm. Here we have, again, kids who have basically no risk of fatality from this COVID infection. And yet we were giving them in our nation, our nation was giving them an untested uh, product that really is best described as a synthetic genetic shot. It's not a traditional childhood vaccine. And there was no way to get our voices heard, to have our voices heard. So I did begin to speak out publicly uh, in the only way I could at public events and, and things. And then I was asked by Senator Johnson's staff, they contacted me and said, would you like to come to this, uh, to attend this fact-finding event that we're holding in Washington, D.C. in December of 2022 and just let Senator Johnson and other senators know what your concerns are? So, of course, I said yes, because that's what I thought my job is to do, right? That's my obligation to speak out. Uh, so I, I traveled to D.C. on my own, at my own expense, I, you know, on my own personal time from work, and uh, I spoke. Uh, so I spoke at the hearing in, on December 7th of 2022, and I, you know, we all had very limited airtime, uh, which is fine. It was a very interesting hearing. It went on for, I think, two or three hours uh, very, very interesting. Lots of people from all sorts of different, you know, areas of expertise that came and spoke. And I released a press uh, release ahead of the event, like we all did, that said, I'm I'm only there speaking on behalf of myself. I'm not there re representing any other entity. And I, I simply said, we're seeing an increase in myocarditis. I showed the blank package insert from a box of mRNA product that I had just removed from a box like two months earlier uh, with one of my one of my nurses was there, and we removed it again. We weren't ordering this for children. I wasn't, but I, it was the first time I'd had my hands on a box of mRNA product, and I'd I'd heard the package insert was blank. So I, I went and I opened the the box with her to take a look, and sure enough, the darn thing was completely blank. It said intentionally blank on it on both sides. So I showed that at the hearing. Mm. I said, we're being silenced and threatened. And I said, other nations have shut down giving this uh, this shot to, to their children and to their young people because their scientists have looked at this and said it's too dangerous. The risk exceeds the benefit. 
So I said, what are we doing? Why are we doing this when, when we know kids have such little risk of the infection itself? And um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I did. I did my, uh, my duty, I thought, as a critically thinking uh, physician and pediatrician. Yeah. How dare you use those critical thinking skills, yeah. Dr. Moon? And I, know. Uh, I believe we have the the tape of your of your uh, like the recording of your uh, what you said at the hearing. Oh, okay. and we're gonna roll that. We're gonna roll that tape. Saw probably two or three cases of myocarditis prior to 2021 in my entire career. I've practiced for over 20 years very experienced, lots of, lots of inpatient care, as well as clinic work. What I'm seeing now, and so what I've seen and what I directly know about cases of myocarditis, they've gone very high, it's been very high. There's clearly been a massive increase. I would like to, um, if it's okay to show the package. No, no you, you've got the props, yeah, so. Yeah, thank you, I show have. Show the audience uh, what, I, I what a standard package is. Yeah, this is the package insert that Dr. Gortler was referring to, and I, I do think it's important to show. So I've been an advocate of vaccines for my entire career. Um, typically, when you open a box of the vaccine product, there's a vial in it and there's a box, and it has a package insert, and this is an example of one that, um, it's sealed and, you know, honestly, for the most part, we don't always read it because we've already looked at it and, and so it goes in the box with the, stays in the box. Um, but, so when I, we open this package insert, a typical package insert looks like this. So it has a great deal of information on it in terms of adverse reactions, um, the components of it, uh, and I'll let Dr. Gortler expand on sort of where this comes from in terms of the FDA. Uh, In other words, a lot of information, kind of like your terms of use for your Apple products. That's right. So there's a lot of information, but we do expect to see this because what, what in the world are we being asked to inject into our nation's children? And that's my question. So a few months ago, I, I looked at the package insert. I pulled it from the box of mRNA product. And, you know, it was sealed just like I'm showing you here. I, I unsealed the box that the entire thing came in. And then I pulled this out. And this is what it looks like. So I'd like to show this to you. It is, sorry about that. It's, um, it's blank. On Boom. Slides, and there it, it is. It says intentionally blank on it. That's the data that pharmacists and physicians are basing on giving the injections outside of mainstream media recommendations. There it is right there. Here's a good question. Why didn't they just print that on a piece of paper the size of a postage stamp? Why all the theater of folding it up into a great big piece of paper like, like that? Why? That's what's passing for informed consent. Right. So how am I to get informed consent to parents when I have, this is what I have. I have a government that's telling me that I have to say safe and effective. And if I don't, my license is at threat. Um, how am I to give informed consent to patients? We're seeing an uptick in myocarditis. We're seeing an uptick in adverse reactions. We have trusted these regulatory agencies. I have for my entire career up until now. Something is extremely wrong. And um, that is the anecdotal story that I have. Well, first of all, th thank you, Dr. Moon. Thank you. I, you know, as a pediatrician, I have to speak to the health of our nation's children. And um, we are being asked to inject this product into our nation's kids who have essentially a 0% risk of harm. 
Um, when I bring up with families that other reputable countries have banned this, they're stunned. They haven't heard this from our mainstream media. And um, I do think we need to pause for a second and distress how relevant that is. Other nations have banned this product because it's too dangerous for younger people. What are we doing? So based off of your participation at that hearing where you said nothing except for what you were seeing, and again, you went as your as a citizen on your own time using your own dime. So how was your participation in that hearing in DC met um, back home? So this is the scary part. So, you know, again, I think it's my obligation to speak. I think it's the obligation of any physician that's concerned about the dangers of a product to speak. So I spoke at the request of a sitting U.S. Senator. And a few months later, I received a letter from one of my employers. Now, that particular employer is a medical school. I've actually taught in the world of medical education for my whole career. I have taught for that medical school for since its inception. The, the school just rolled out, uh, you know, opened its doors to medical students a few years ago. So I taught for this medical school for, I think, about six or seven years. But I received a letter from them, and that letter is now public information. You can, I'll, we'll tell you at the end of this how to find it and take a look at it. But basically the letter uh, was concerning because it said, you know, it specifically cited my appearance at the Senator Johnson hearing with, they clearly were not happy that I'd been there and that I'd spoken. And then they said it was their ethical obligation to report my words at that Senate hearing to the medical commission of my state because they alleged that I may have provided misinformation. And then they also said in the next uh, sentence that I may no longer be suited to teach their medical students. And a few months later, they decided not to renew my annual faculty contract. So they effectively terminated my employment a few months later by not renewing my annual faculty contract just like a day or two before it was supposed to renew. I, I'd already met my new students and was ready to go for the new academic year. And that was the end of my job. So, so I lost my pension. I lost my job. Uh, I lost my health insurance. I lost, you know, I lost my work because I spoke. Yeah. So what was your response? What, what, I mean, I, I can't even imagine. So there was, uh, you lost employment and then was an investigation. Like they kind of alluded to a possible investigation. Did something come of that? Yeah, they, they said with the letter before they terminated my employment uh, by not renewing my contract, they did say they would investigate. And they did have somebody from the university, you know, reached out to me from the medical school and wanted information. And so I sent them some documents to show like one of the allegations was that I hadn't taken official personal time off. And, you know, I have plenty of documents to show all that. That's so I sent them those documents. There were letters. I had official time off. And and not to mention that the event itself was held on a day where I don't even teach at the medical school. I never taught at the medical school on the day that the event was being held. So it was all, it, that that first part of the letter is all, so I, I showed them the, the documents that they wanted to see, but the, then I never heard anything back about any sort of conclusion to their investigation. It was just radio silent. And uh, that was it. So there was no real communication other than the letter then terminating my employment. Yeah. Okay. 
And so, um, I mean, what's been your response to all of this? Well, actually, there's one more step that I don't know if you're even aware of because it's just recently making the news. But um, so the chairman of the medical school, after they, they again, they didn't renew my contract. So that, that chairman then wrote a letter to the medical commission. They actually followed through with their threat to report me to the medical commission of the state that I uh, had practiced in, Washington State, again, alleging potential misinformation at the Senator Johnson hearing. Uh, so they were basically requesting an investigation of me. The Washington Medical Commission, you know, could have chosen to throw that out and say it was frivolous, but they actually decided to launch an investigation into my appearance at the Senator Johnson hearing, again, for what they're alleging to be potential unprofessional conduct, um, which is really interesting because I actually don't even have a license in the state of Washington anymore. I had practiced there for 19 years. But earlier in 2023, I had decided not to renew my annual state medical license because I felt that I could no longer ethically care for patients in that state. If you, if you don't have free speech, how can you possibly provide ethical care to patients? So I had just voluntarily, under duress though, given up my Washington medical license. And so they're actually, they actually reported a physician, the chairman reported a physician who no longer had an active medical license it's on the top of his letter. It was clear he knew that my license had expired. And the Washington Medical Commission is investigating a physician who no longer even has an active medical license in that state. And as you had mentioned earlier, I've never had any actions against any state medical license. I'd cared for children in that state for, you know, for 19 years, 17 years of which were spent caring for hospitalized kids. And I'd never had any problem at all. So they're, they're coming after someone in the most um, really uh, ridiculous way. It's, it's, it's absolute weaponization of our regulatory agencies against free speech. And there, there really is no other way to, uh, to take that, I think. Uh, they're clearly coming after us for speaking. Yeah. And since then, you have moved out of state. Is that, is that accurate? You're in Florida now? Yeah, I actually no longer, like I said, I no longer practice in Washington State, and so I um, have have moved, and I don't really disclose uh, to people officially where I, my official residence is, but I'm I'm around the country working and, and still seeing patients. Uh, you know, this this to me is is just so alarming. It's not about just my free speech; it's really about the free speech of every single person in America. H how can we how can we have a nation like this where? You know, we've lost our free speech to this extent. Uh, my the analogy I like to give is is you know if you're getting on board an airplane and the pilot's standing right there and the pilot says you know I'm not sure we should fly this plane. There's something funny with the engine and the landing gear is kind of wonky. Like you wouldn't the answer would not be to fire the pilot and to investigate the pilot. You would send a crew out to immediately look at the plane and see what's wrong. So this is this is we cannot be stifling. Uh, free speech when it comes to, you know, physicians speaking ab out about their legitimate concerns about the dangers of a product, a medical product. But yet here we are, and that's exactly what's happening right now. Um, it, you know, and I, I also think, you know, we need to look and think about the person who reported me. This came from the chairman of a medical school. So I would ask the listener, what what message does that send to medical students and to other faculty 
uh, at medical schools and colleges and law schools all across our country? What, what message does this send about the ability of, of anyone to question anything and to engage in, in free speech? Yeah. Well, not beyond just free speech, healthy debate. I mean, isn't that the bedrock of, of all, you know, just scientific evolution is just getting able to debate. I mean, if without healthy debate, surgeons would still not be washing their hands. I mean, it's just mind blowing that this is, this is not something that you were mistreating children or, you know, causing child pediatric anything. You just simply spoke words at a hearing and had, you know, were compelled to not even renew your license because you couldn't practice medicine under such hostile conditions. So I don't know, that kind of healthy debate, the the suppression of just free flow of thoughts, it's such a dangerous precedent. So dangerous. I mean, when we look back at history, we don't have to look even that far. I mean, look at, for example, thalidomide. Remember when thalidomide was ordered for women? I think it was in the 1950s and it was given to women who were pregnant as an anti-nausea medication. And it wasn't until a number of years had passed and many of these women delivered babies who had uh, deformities of their limbs. They were born without, without arms and, and legs. And finally, somebody, some, one of the physicians realized that this is coming from potentially from the thalidomide. What if that doctor had been silenced? What if those doctors had been silenced? Would we have continued to give thalidomide? And, you know, our country would think it was normal for babies to be born uh, with those kinds of, uh, of problems, functional problems with their bodies. You know, this is, this is terrifying. Our entire uh, scientific and medical community is built on robust discussion and debate and dialogue, and they've absolutely shut it down. Uh, it's, it is, it's terrifying, and, and it really concerns me for what that means for the future of medical education. When we have students now who really have the impression that, you know, faculty members like myself who speak out did something wrong. I, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. I 100% stand by that. I'm upholding my Hippocratic oath to do no harm, and I'm reporting what I'm seeing to a government official, to a U.S. senator of all things. You know, that's exactly what I'm supposed to do uh, in a situation like this. And and I even said in my testimony, this is my anecdotal testimony I'm giving today. This is what I've seen with my own eyes. So it's it's really become, it, you know, we, we're sitting here chuckling over it because I, I do too. I laugh about it because it's just so beyond ridiculous that we are in this position right now in America. You know, my, my question is, do we have a U.S. Constitution any longer? Do we actually have a U.S. Constitution any longer? Because this this case, I think my case, my situation shows that there really is just no free speech left for your physicians in many of our states. And that should be alarming to every single person. Yeah, it's a horrifying thought. It really, really is. I don't uh, I don't want to see a doctor that feels like he can't even question a narrative or, you know, it just reminds me of like when when parents say I was dismissed from a pediatric, a pediatrician's office today because I dared to even ask a question about a vaccine. And they were, they, they, without fail, they always say, I just had some questions. And if they just answered, I probably would have consented to the vaccination. But because 
their reaction was so just almost violent and just aggressive. She, they, they all, they all say, now I'm going to look deeper into it. And now I'm not vaccinating because I wasn't even allowed to ask the question. So these, it all seems to be backfiring. And that leads me to my next question. So Mm -hmm. as you're experience with all of this, you know, as a doctor that historically advocated for and provided all of the more routine childhood vaccinations. Has this changed your perception of even those? It absolutely has led me to question everything. This has turned, you know, I think this has turned the world upside down on its head for so many of us, right, who understand how dangerous this is. Uh, You know, again, I have done nothing but promote traditional childhood vaccines throughout my whole career. And I saw the system work the way that it was intended to work, I thought, back when I first began to practice. I I was actually in Houston, was my first practice. I was with uh, three Texas Children's Pediatric Associates out at Memorial Hospital. And I watched them pull the first rotavirus vaccine off the market in the late 1990s because Across our nation, we had less than 100 cases of a rare intestinal problem called intussusception that the, you know, the FDA was concerned might have come from the rotavirus vaccine. So out of an abundance of caution, they pulled it off the market, which was absolutely the right thing to do. I saw them do the right thing then. And like any questioning, you know, physician and person, I want to know, you know, I saw the system working correctly then. It clearly is not working correctly in 2020. We clearly have significant, massive concerns about how this is working now. So the obvious question is, when did this go wrong? How long has it been that this has been happening? How long has this corruption and this this, uh, problem been present in our regulatory agencies? So yes, I absolutely am now questioning everything because, because it's obvious now. Yeah. It's obvious the corruption runs very deep. And it's, you know, as somebody on this side of the issue that's been, you know, Texans for Vaccine Choices, about to ha- we're about to celebrate our ninth birthday. So we were, you know, things we've been shouting out from the mountaintops for years before COVID, yeah. you know, so many people are saying, you know, I get it now. I get it now. And, you know, it's so from that perspective, yeah. I can just say it's run deep and it's run long. I mean, it's, it predates Texans for Vaccine Choice by decades as well. Um, just the, the rubber stamping, but I agree yeah. with you there, you know, you go back to even the swine flu vaccine in the seventies, it was pulled after a few dozen horrific yeah. Yeah. Uh, reactions. So, you know, the system is supposed to be to, to work when we, there are known, you know, the safety signals, are you know very very obvious but it has just ethically failed when it comes to this and not just we're going to turn a blind eye not only that but we're going to be aggressive towards any provider that dares to even open his or her mouth yeah and this is this is it is just surreal to me i think like it is to you that we're actually living in times like this where it's just so but this is a catastrophic failure of our public health care system absolutely you know, it's obvious. And, you know, not just shutting down physicians from speaking, but this idea that parents can't advocate for their own kids and they can't speak or they're kicked out of offices. We've never had anything like that in the healthcare world that I've, I've seen. You know, this is this flipped on its head overnight. I've, I've, I've met plenty of parents who've come into the office who are 
literally crying in front of me because they were kicked out of their prior pediatrician's office with nowhere to go because they refused one of the vaccines. You know, it's, 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 it's just unbelievable that parents have lost that ability to make decisions for their kids. And if they, they try to question anything, they try to ask a question or do or say anything, they're, they're kicked out of offices now. Uh, you know, it's just, it really is unbelievable. So. It is. It's the opposite of providing care. You know, yeah. it's just, yeah. and let me ask you this, you know, you're this inactive license in Washington state is being investigated. Does that have the potential to impact your current license and, and where you practice in the nation? Yeah, and actually, I've, I've gotten so used to saying for so long that I, that I practice throughout the U.S. that I completely have messed up because I, we did, I am helping with a clinic that we opened up in Florida, in Venice, Florida, and I want to put a plug in for that clinic. So it's called We the People Health and Wellness. And um, yeah, it's a great clinic in Florida that really is not different from the way that we've always practiced medicine, which is to let patients and parents make their own health care choices. <laughs> And so I've been I've been helping with that clinic with getting that rolling, uh, but yes, this this investigation in Washington State absolutely could you know otherwise they wouldn't be coming after me right they 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 mean to send a message to me for daring to question I think and and they anytime you've had a report against you at another state you are obligated to report that you know if, if the conclusion of the investigation you are reported to obligated to report that to other states in which you're licensed. So this is something where I will have to report this to future states uh, very potentially uh, moving forward. So it's a blemish on my un otherwise unblemished record, potentially. Uh, again, they haven't made a decision. So if they drop it, I think it is not as big of an issue. But, but, but yeah, they have the potential to harm my licenses in other states. And yet I have a clean record. I'm going to remind people these regulatory agencies were put into place you know, to keep bad doctors from from practicing. So, you know, if you had a doctor who was an alcoholic and was coming to work, you know, intoxicated, or you had a doctor who was, you know, using drugs or things, that's one of the more common complaints against physicians, actually. And they come after physicians, and you can lose your license over that, as, as you should. You shouldn't be, you know, under the influence when you're caring for patients, right? So those regulatory agencies were put in for a good reason, but I would make the very strong case that someone like me who's practiced for 19 years in their state without a single incident, a single blemish on my license, uh, you know, who's not been accused of any of those things, who's simply been accused of speaking at a Senate hearing, that's not what these regulatory agencies were created for. This is absolutely the direct weaponization of these regulatory agencies against uh, those of us who are practicing medicine. And um, so, yeah, but yes, you're correct. It could harm me uh, to some extent. Mm. Yeah. Goodness. It's certainly well, stressful. <laughs> I can't even imagine. And that's mm -hmm. why when I heard you speak in Bandera, I was thinking, I've got to get you on our show because this is yeah. really important for people to really understand the level. You know, we, we hear a lot about censorship, right? But this takes it to like a very practical, this isn't just some hypothetical. This is you are under investigation yeah. that has, you know, potential really bad ripple effects for the future of your career for yeah. just going to a Senate hearing in D.C. It's it's just I mean, I, I hope that we can help share your story. We can get listeners. And to that end, I want to just ask you, how can people 
find more information, support you? Like what action can our listeners take? Yeah, thank you for asking. I think the first action is for everyone to continue to be loud and vocal and continue the fight that you guys have been uh, pursuing because this is this is a this is an epic battle for freedom in America of all things, right? So so we're in a terrible place. So please continue to be loud, continue to do what you can at your grassroots level. I would encourage you to look at the website. I have a legal team helping. The website is called silentmajorityfoundation.org, silentmajorityfoundation.org. And they have a web page where you can actually look and review the actual documents that I'm referring to. I would encourage you to pull up those documents. They're part of public record. And I would encourage you to get them out there on social media. People need to see what's happening, what they've actually written and what they're doing. Uh, in the in the context of this whole you know situation, right? So get that information out there. Uh, if you are able to donate, I'm not asking for any money for myself. I'll I'll be fine. I you know I I may lose my whole career over this, but I'm not going down without a fight. I'm going to absolutely fight because I'm fighting for all of us. We're all fighting this together, and um, so we are absolutely going to keep fighting. But if you can donate a little bit, it would be helpful to uh, the Silent Majority Foundation. That's the legal team that is helping me. They are absolutely uh, wonderful. They are very tough with this. They're fighting for all of our constitutional rights. If you don't feel comfortable sending something electronically, you can mail them uh, a, a small donation. Anything would be appreciated. We, we certainly would appreciate that. But again, not for me, but for this fight, for this battle. Yeah. So Wonderful. Well, as we're kind of getting towards the end of your story here, is there anything that I haven't asked you or final thoughts that you'd like to share to our listeners? Yeah, so if, if people have listened to me in the past, they will know, but I do want to say for the people that may not know, my family fled from uh, from communism. So I think that's part of why I've been so outspoken is because I personally visited my, my parents' uh, former homeland I actually have a very I have a very interesting family history. My dad was actually born in Argentina, and my mom was born in Prague, former Czechoslovakia, and they met wow. behind the Iron Curtain of Communism. My mom, when she was in college, was in an adjacent room when they came for one of her professors. They they removed him from teaching. He had been teaching genetics, and that was outlawed, um, not allowed at her college. Uh, even though it was just down the street from the famous uh, monastery where Greg Mendel did his uh, his genetic P, the PEA experiments, green P experiments. So this professor was pulled for teaching genetics and and she never saw him again. They just they disappeared him. Uh, you know, I I was telling that story and I thought the faculty had come for him, but she actually corrected me and said, no, honey, it was actually the the police came for him. The police came for him and removed him because he wasn't following the narrative. My my family fled from this. My family did not leave their their parents and their relatives and their other you know aunts and uncles. They didn't leave them all behind to come to America because their homeland was wonderful. They they left because it had become a living hell. Mm -hmm. And we are absolutely in the early stages of our our beautiful country, America becoming a living hell. We cannot lose our free speech. We cannot lose our ability to have discussions and dialogue and debate. And that this all stops when everybody says it stops, when everybody starts speaking out and being loud and, and not taking this because we cannot tolerate this. So so my final plea is to, to we have nowhere to go. My, my parents fled to America. 
we have nowhere to flee to. This is our country. These are our children and we're holding our ground. Yeah. I agree. I mean, if like, there's nowhere for us to go. I like the- There's nowhere to go. Somebody, some, uh, a politician, politician I respect deeply once said, the Calvary's not coming. Like we are it, you know? And so- We are uh, the Calvary. We are. Yeah, we are. We so are. everybody's sitting at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for those sitting at home quietly and just thinking this is going to pass, this is getting worse and worse. And Washington State, unfortunately, is one of the one of the worst places right now in the sense of loss of freedom. It's it's right up there with California. So, but this is coming to every single state if we allow it. We cannot allow this. And so everybody's sitting at home. If you're sitting there quietly and you don't know what to do. Find somebody, engage locally, get into this because this is not going to stop until we all make it stop. We have to make this stop. So, yeah. Uh, well, with that, I will, I, that was just so beautifully articulated, Dr. Moon. And I am just, I, I hate that uh, what has, what you're going through. I hate it. But I also can, um, on the, the other side of that coin, is just be very grateful. I'm so thankful for you for standing up, for using your voice, for but just being brave and um, really fighting for truth. So thank you so much for uh, for coming on. And um, I, it's just a blessing to know you. And uh, on behalf of uh, the entire team at Texans for Vaccine Choice, just know that you are in our prayers and you will be continue to share your story. Thank you so much for having me on. And I, I really enjoyed meeting you. So at that, at that dinner, I could see your energy. I can see this, this is a fabulous group. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shot Callers podcast. Please, if you found value in this content, rate us and share the podcast with a friend. It's a great way to get the message out and to empower everyone to make informed decisions. Until next time, never forget, we are the Shot Callers.